Amen, amen. If you have a Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. We'll be uh, looking at the whole chapter during the sermon, but simply reading verses 1 through 11 uh, this morning. Genesis chapter 37. And as you're opening there, uh, I want to say a word uh, to each of you that are here today. Thank you for being here. And uh, if you're new to our church, I just want to mention a little bit about the way preaching normally goes. In fact, uh, a couple weeks ago on Palm Sunday, I preached from the book of Philippians, and I thought, I think we have some new members who have never even heard me preach from the New Testament. And so it's probably good uh, that we have a little break there and could preach from the New Testament. We're not always in the Old Testament, but we're, uh, we tend to do long series through books of the Bible because we want to help you see the big picture of what's going on in the Scriptures and I'll probably get the best amen I've ever gotten, but we confess that I have nothing good to say uh, that's not in the Bible. And so we, we want to make sure that you're hearing the Scriptures and understanding the Scriptures. So we've been in Genesis now for a little bit, uh, and if you're sort of feeling like a drought of grace or something like that, I try to show you the Gospel even in the Old Testament. But uh, the next series, Lord willing, that we'll be in is the book of Galatians uh, starting uh, this fall in August. So um, anyway, I wanted you to know sort of what we do, and uh, some people call this uh, uh, expository preaching or, or something like that, and so something along those lines is what we normally do uh, here at First Baptist Church. So thank you for being with us uh, today, and we look forward to digging into the text this morning. In fact, if you've opened up there to Genesis chapter 37, why don't you go and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us. Beginning verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they, heard, hey, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams, and his words. And then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Let's pray together. O oh Lord our God, we ask that you would please open our hearts and minds to receive this word. 
And oh God, I pray we would be changed by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One thing that we've learned uh, over the years is that we as a people in general love big, epic stories. We, we, we love shows and movies and books that tell big, epic stories that tend to make sense of the worlds in which they exist. So whether that's Marvel movies or Harry Potter movies, our culture tends to love stories that are epic in scope. And some of you might be already like, well, maybe nerds like you do, but not me. But I bet you like The Godfather or something like that that's epic, a big, a big story. Recently, it was announced that Amazon's going to be developing a series based on J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings series. Now, I don't know exactly how it's going to work out, what portion of Middle Earth history that's going to be. That's kind of a dog whistle for the fellow nerds out there who kind of uh, I'm sort of trying to see if we can get some, con I'll get some emails this week from folks asking what I think about this. Uh, this week, though, I learned that, that, that in buying the rights to this Lord of the Rings story, Amazon spent $200 million, uh, over $200 million to the estate of J.R.R. Tolkien to get the rights to these stories. And then it was announced this week what they plan to spend on the first season of this series. As of right now, the plan is for them to spend 400, over $465 million to make one season of this series. Just to put that in perspective, that's almost half a billion dollars. So if you're not convinced already that we love big and epic stories, surely that convinces you that's something we're into. You see, all these nerds have gone and gotten tech jobs, and so they can spend money on this stuff now. It's amazing. Epic stories are big bit. By the way, I love the Lord of the Rings. I always say, one of my, uh, I told Woody this the other day. I said, I can remember reading uh, Lord of the Rings on the football bus traveling to football games. You talk about threading a needle. That's threading a needle right there. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, that's, uh, anyway, so, so I, I love Lord of the Rings. Epic stories are big business because we're hardwired to love epic stories. We are hardwired. It is built in us to love epic stories because God made us that way because there's actually a story, an epic story that makes sense of the world that's being told. And guess what? We are all a part of it because God is at work to redeem a fallen world through His Son, Jesus Christ. Every epic story pales in comparison. And the way that this epic story opens up and sort of the front bookend of how we understand what God is doing in the world is the very book we're studying today, the book of Genesis. And as we see these big pictures and these big motifs and these big arcs that Moses is weaving together, the whole story sort of crescendos in the story we turn our attention to today. And it is the story of the life of Joseph. You see, along the way, we'll see different representatives and different people and different beings who represent evil in the story of the Bible. And I believe in a literal Satan. I believe literally that there is uh, a being called the devil out there in the world. And we are introduced, I think, to him in the book of Genesis. And yet, he is not the great villain of the Bible. Sin is the great villain of the Bible. Without sin, without human sin, the, the devil's powerless in the world. The only authority, the only thing he has against you 
is sin. It's the only thing he has to work with in the world is sin, our rebellion. The greatest villain of the Bible is sin, and it's introduced to us in Genesis. And here as we begin to see this story of Joseph Joseph unfold, Moses, as he's introducing this narrative, is reminding us of the villain that we're really working against here. And you're going to see lots of characters and lots of players, but in the background throughout the book of Genesis and throughout the entirety of the Bible and even right now in the world today, that villain that's at work in the background in the most epic and the greatest story ever told is sin. And today I, I want to talk to you about sin. I, I want you to see the way that sin is at work in the world and even among the people of God. And this morning, as we read this story and study this story, I hope you'll see these three truths about sin that will help you fight it by God's grace. By God's grace, you can fight sin because Christ has overcome sin. And I think as we look at this text, we can see some truths about what sin is like and how sin works that will help you, by God's grace, fight sin in your very own life. Three truths this morning. Here's the first. Sin is relentless. Sin is relentless. Notice what happens here in these first 11 verses. I hope verses 3 and 4 stuck out to you as we read this. Now Israel loved Joseph, verse 3, more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. The sort of language that's used about this robe is only used one other place in the Bible, and it's a robe that was owned by one of David's King David's daughters. And so the the way that we understand the Hebrew text and the way this uh, robe is referred to, A, I think it does refer to a multicolored robe. That is an extravagant robe for the day and age. But it was also a robe, it seems like, the language seems to indicate, a robe that had long sleeves. Some scholars think that's an indication then that, that uh, uh, the robe had royal connotations to it because if you were out working manual labor and working hard in the fields, you wouldn't have a robe with long sleeves. You'd have to roll your sleeves up to work. And so th- this is an extravagant robe and a special robe. And, and whether any of that's true or not, we can tell by the text that his brothers didn't like the fact that he had this robe that set him apart. And so his brothers already hate him, the Bible says. Because they see that his father loves him more than all of the other brothers. And they couldn't even speak peacefully to him. They couldn't even be kind to him at all. Well then, to add insult to injury, Joseph begins to have dreams. The first dream is simple enough. They're all out working in the field, bringing in the sheaves. And all the brothers' sheaves bow down to Joseph's sheaf. And then in the second dream, it gets even worse. The sun, the moon, and 11 stars all come and bow down to Joseph. Now notice what the Bible says in verse 10. When he told his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow down ourselves to the ground before you? You'll notice how Joseph has had two dreams here. Later he knows, I don't know if this was common knowledge or something he only knew, but when it Pharaoh was perplexed about the fact that he had had two dreams. 
Joseph explained to him that when you have this dream twice, you have a dream like this twice, a, a dream that seems to be a revelation from the Lord, when it happens twice, that means it is definitely going to happen. The Lord has fixed it and said it, it will happen. And here Joseph has these two dreams. Now do you see the conflict that's here? Do you see these brothers who seem to kind of hate each other? And the Bible doesn't really speak negatively of Joseph's character at any point, but I will say I've been 17 years old before, and if I had those two dreams, it'd be hard not to rub it in just a little. And you kind of get the sense that maybe he is just, just a little bit. In fact, the clue we have in the text that maybe Joseph was hamming it up just a little too much was that even his father rebuked him. And yet he stored this thought away in his mind. You see, I want you to know that one, one hallmark of conflict in a fallen world is enmity and strife and anger between brothers. I don't think there's any grief in the world quite like the grief of family conflict. And I think as we see this, I think Moses is intentionally, with this language and the way he's presenting this story and the, and the way that Genesis flows, I think it's really clear that Moses is intentionally trying to point our minds and our hearts back as we see the hatred and the jealousy of Joseph's brothers. I think we're reminded, meant to be reminded, of the story of Cain and Abel from earlier in Genesis, where Cain thought that the Lord preferred Abel over him and was jealous of him and struck him down and killed him. And throughout this story, as with the rest of Genesis, we will see the way that sin works against the good design and blessing of God. That's part of what Moses is trying to help us see. These brothers were meant to be recipients of the promises of God. They should have all been grateful for the way that God was using even Joseph to bring about what he's bringing about. Their family's not just a family. It's a harbinger of the promises and blessings of God. It's, it's the way by which God will bless the world. And the scripture teaches that kings would come from Jacob. He'd been told that kings would descend from him. And so the brothers ought not to be surprised that even one of them would be singled out as a king. And yet... Sin is working its way through the world, and there is nothing that man can do to stop it. And even here in the 12 tribes of Israel, even here, sin is at work. We've got a lot of pine trees along the back fence at our house, and last year when Whitney and I moved into our new home, uh, all over those trees and all along that back fence and all over the place back there was a vine that was growing all over the place, everywhere. And, and when I say vine, I don't mean just a little vine like this. I mean, some of the canes of this vine were this big around. We had to cut them with a chainsaw to get them out. And so two of the handiest handymen that have ever lived, Matt Alexander and Chris Alexander, got back there uh, to try to uh, tear this vine out. And I'm going to tell you something. We got so much junk out of it. There. There's no telling how many good plants we destroyed trying to get this vine out of there. It's relentless. It's everywhere. I, you couldn't even tell. And just when we thought we'd gotten it all, we'd see another little, little sprig up come up, and we'd look and we'd see, oh, it's in this tree too. Everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And that doesn't even begin to illustrate how insidious and how relentless sin is in our lives and, in fact, in our world. This ought to serve as a warning to all of us. Sin doesn't just go away. Moses is helping us see the way it 
as we've worked through Genesis, as you read through Genesis, notice the way that people tend to sin in patterns, that the same themes of sin tend to come up. And think about in your own life and in the world around you, the way that sin doesn't just go away. It has to be ruthlessly weeded out. And even then, we can't do it ourselves, can we? And just right when we think we've gotten it all out, here comes another sprig. Sin doesn't just go away. We need help in putting sin to death. Sin is relentless. And that's part of the story that's being told in the Bible is the way that sin keeps cropping up. Sin keeps coming back. Sin keeps intertwining itself with the good things in the garden of God, so to speak. And yet God has a plan to rid the world of sin and evil. And even in the very story we're reading today, God is at work to one day bring the Christ into the world in such a way that sin would be banished forever and ever from God's good creation. Sin is relentless, but God's grace is greater than all our sin. Second of all, not only is sin relentless, but sin is also blinding. Sin is blinding. Jacob, in verses 12 through 28, he's called Israel here, and interestingly enough, Moses will kind of go back and forth some between Jacob and and Israel, but his new, he's been renamed Israel, and he sends Joseph to check on his brothers as they pasture the flock. And early in this section, there's a little interlude where he kind of gets lost, and he learns that they're down in Dothan. Finally, he goes, he finds his brothers, and in verse 19, they sneer at him as they see him coming. Here comes this dreamer. And immediately, the bloodthirstiness of their jealousy and their anger becomes clear. Immediately after they see him coming, they decide, now is the time. We're far from home and under the cover of darkness, away from the sight of our Father, we can kill this dreamer. And we'll see what comes of his dreams then. Reuben, the oldest of the sons, decides that he wants to save him. He had fallen out of the good graces of his father uh, through a sin he committed with one of his father's wives. And so it seems like he's maybe trying to earn his way back into the good graces of his father. And so he decides to save him. And he says, just throw him in the pit. And he sort of secretly plots to come get him later. Lo and behold, as they've thrown their brother in a jealous fit of rage into the pit, Reuben is secretly plotting, hoping he can save his brother and it seems like bring him back to his father and return him home safely and maybe earn his father's good graces. In the midst of all this, Judah has an idea. And while this section of the Bible seems to be primarily about Joseph, what you'll learn as you read it and as we study it is that Judah is a primary character as, as well. And here we begin to learn about Judah, and we'll learn even more that we don't want to know next week about Judah. But here we see Judah who has an idea. He says, why kill him? Why don't we sell him? You see, he's caught, in, caught sight of Ishmaelite traders who are coming through. And he says, why don't we just, just sell him? The, the brothers seem to still be bloodthirsty, so he decides we'll sell him instead of killing him. Now, I, I think that based on the arc of Judah's life and the rest of the book of Genesis, it seems to me that he's being greedy and trying to make a profit, not necessarily trying uh, to save Joseph's life, but Moses is very intentionally trying to help us see as we begin to focus on Judah a little bit in the coming weeks as well as Joseph that it was Judah that so saved Joseph's life. And so like 
some of their descendants, one of their descendants years down the line, and in exchange for his life, they receive shekels of silver, and they sell Joseph into slavery. And there's a stark sentence in verse 28 that tells us the deed is done. They took Joseph to Egypt. Now you see the way these brothers are behaving. They're behaving in a way that's blinded to the realities of who God is. Sin has, first of all, blinded them to God's law. You see, the jealousy and rage of the brothers has led them to want to murder, and so they ignore the fact that God has said, you shall not murder. Now, they haven't received the Ten Commandments yet, but it's clear from the whole text of Genesis that it was understood that God forbid people to murder. They're blinded then to God's commands, to what God has told them to do. They're willing to do anything to get rid of their brother, even kill him. The sin also blinds you to God's will. You see, the brothers can't see that God is at work in the dreams and the life of Joseph. They can't see that. Now, maybe he's a little cocky and he's a teenager, and maybe that, but they can't see the fact that God is at work. They can't see God's will. They can't see what God's doing in the life of Joseph. Now, isn't it ironic that these are men who are named by God and who are supposed to be serving God, and they can't see that God's at work in the life of Joseph? And over and over and over again in the rest of this text, Joseph will encounter pagan after pagan after pagan. And the first thing they see, you know, immediately what do they notice? That the hand of God is on this man. That God is at work in this man's life. You see, these men who are supposed to be godly are so blinded by sin that they can't see God even as clearly as pagans do working in the life of Joseph. They see what these supposedly God-fearing brothers couldn't. See, but sin also blinds you to God's sovereignty. Sin blinds you to the fact that you're not able to overcome what God has said would happen. You, you, they are so blinded by their sin that they don't know that their sins will one day fall back on their heads. They don't realize that God is in control. They're, they're so blinded by their sin and they're so blinded by things, they don't even realize that God's still in control. We're the same way sometimes. So often we find ourselves blinded to the way that our actions have consequences, that God is still in control. Years ago, I was on a church bus on the way to Georgia to pick apples, and I made a terrible mistake that I didn't realize what sort of ramifications it would have. I taught Larry Furman how to text that day. And, and little did I know the way that pain and anguish would follow me all the rest of the days of my life. One mistake. One mistake can impact our lives. Sin does, though. It blinds you to God's sovereignty. It, it blinds you to the way that you begin to think, hey, I'm in control here. I am God here. I am in charge here. But the reality is you aren't. Sin blinds us to that reality. And if you know the rest of the story, then you know the way that God uses even these brothers' sin to bring about His perfect purposes. You see, sin makes us think we can undo God's works and God's will through our own actions. But as this story progresses, we're going to see over and over the way that nothing can thwart God's sovereignty. He is in control. Sin will blind you. One of the greatest things that sin takes from you, one of the most important things that you need that sin takes from you is your ability to see yourself as you really are. 
and your ability to see God as He really is. And sin inevitably blinds us to both of those realities. Sin is relentless. Sin is blinding. And finally, sin is devastating. Sin is devastating. Uh, Reuben returns, and in verses 29 and 30, we see the grief he experiences. Now, you know, I say, I'm kind of dunking on Reuben a little bit. It, it seems here when he says, to whom will I go? In verse 30, to, to whom, where shall I go? The boy is gone and I, where shall I go? I think what he's asking is, how can I get back in the good graces of my father? And yet Joseph is gone. He's gone to Egypt. He's being taken by these Ishmaelites to Egypt. And in order to try to cover their own tracks and their own guilt, these brothers take this multicolored robe, this sign of their jealousy and anger, this picture of the love of their father. They slaughter a goat and they take this robe and they dip it in the blood. And they take it there to Israel and they show it to their father and they let him draw his own conclusion. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph, Jacob says, is without doubt torn to pieces. This chapter ends with a bleak picture of the devastation of sin. Look at verse 35, all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. You see the way that Reuben is devastated by sin. You see the way that Jacob is devastated by sin. And certainly you see the irony of the way that with a garment dipped in blood in a similar way, Jacob deceived his own father with animal skin. Surely you see the way that Jacob is on the receiving end of some of his own sinfulness. And you see the way that this relentless, blinding sin has made its way from Jacob to his sons. You, you see the way that sin is at work, that sin is devastating everything in its path, that people are crushed and devastated and hurt. Sin is at work in the world, and there's nothing we can ever do to overcome it. So it seems. Meanwhile, verse 36, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And while it seems like the devastating power of sin is insurmountable, we know that God is at work in ways we cannot understand. And just that small little verse that says, Meanwhile, those of us who know the story already know the way that God is at work in circumstance we could, we could not even imagine, we couldn't think up, we couldn't make up. God is at work to undo the consequences of sin, not only in the life of these brothers, but in the life of everyone sitting here right now who hears and knows the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because sin is relentless and blinding and devastating. But in the midst of it all, and despite our rebellion, and despite all that we've done wrong in the world, God is at work through the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin does not have the final 
save. Sin does not have the final word. And so often it seems like the great villain of the day has its foot on the neck of God's champion. And in fact, he very much did at the cross. And yet it was through that action, it was through the sin, it was through the wickedness, it was through what seemed like defeat, it was through the weakness, it was through the foolishness of the gospel that God has triumphed over the things in the world that seem so strong. Do you see the way that the gospel is triumphant over all things in this world? Do you see what God's doing? Do you see the way that God is at work? The most epic part of the story is that right when it seems like sin has had the final say, right when it seems like evil is going to win, God's unrelenting, unflinching, victorious pursuit of sinners is still at work, even in ways we cannot see. God is at work, and His grace is not overcome. And even in the midst of this sinful, sordid story, God is at work in the lives of these men to one day save all of creation through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we see that while sin relentlessly abounds, God's grace abounds all the more through Christ. While sin blinds us, Christ can open our eyes and write God's law on our hearts so that we can see the reality of the glory of who God is. While sin utterly devastates everything in its past, in its path, Jesus Christ gives a new creation by His grace. And right when it seems like sin has won, meanwhile, God is at work. And today, He can be at work in your life through the gospel, even now. I, I, I hope you'll respond to Him today. First of all, this morning, if you are an unbeliever, you've never put your trust in Jesus, would you turn to God through Christ today? and receive the grace that He has so richly provided? Second of all, you may be a believer, and you may say, Pastor, I've just not been, I've been trying to do this on my own. I've been trying to defeat sin myself, and I am pinned to the mat, and I need someone to work on my behalf. Would you you ask Jesus to help you today? Would you be sanctified? Would you kill sin by grace through faith? I believe He will help you, believer. And finally, you you may say, I need a group of people that God's appointed to help me with my sin. I'd love to talk to you today about what it means for you to be a member here at First Baptist Church. You can do business right where you are, or you can come to this altar today. Either way, after this prayer is done, I'd like for you to do business with the Lord today. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his gospel. And oh God, it's our prayer that you would move in our